Welcome back to the 27th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be going through some of the top stories, including two that break down presidential hopeful candidate DeSantis's actions in Florida, as well as one that you know, tries to distinguish between the far right that is ever-growing in America and conservatives and why we need to classify them differently. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. So over the last few years and you know it's been a slow downfall but let's say the last two decades the terms liberal and conservative they've really become overused or used improperly or at least the people that would normally encompass those groups have really spread out across the political spectrum so one of my questions to you is have those terms really lost their meaning When I ask you or mention uh, a liberal or a conservative, what do those terms conjure? What images do you see in your head when someone says, oh, yes, yes, uh, my cousin is a liberal, my uncle is a conservative? What what pops into your head? And you probably have a well-defined definition or at least a mental picture of what that is. But as our last segment really points out here today, we'll get to it at the end, it really, the definition, the terms, they don't mean what they used to, or at least they don't encompass the same people as they used to. So I just want to know, I'm just really curious if you felt that the term conservative has changed in your mind when you picture a conservative or when you think about what policies a conservative would put forward has that changed over the last few years, or you have you held steady? And the same goes for uh, what you think of a liberal. And if you could put your comments down there in the comment section, just give me a little bit of insight as to what people are thinking. I really want to know, because I really do believe that they have changed. I believe there's been a big shift. I think that the progressive has been lumped in with the liberal for a little too long. And I think that the far right, and I say far right, the extremely nationalist sector of the Republican Party, even though it is absolutely tiny, I think that has also started to be clumped in with conservatives. And I I think at the end of the day, that's a dangerous game. We need to call each faction what they are in order to best ensure that we describe accurately what is happening in America's political system. But we'll get to plenty of that in the last segment. Let's jump to our first story. This one comes from the Daily Beast. Florida puts raging MAGA moms on book banning council. So Florida has created what some are calling a quote-unquote censorship council on which members were placed. And obviously they were, it was done in a very partisan fashion. You know, that's not really a surprise, if we're being honest. Uh, It's practically impartial, impossible to be impartial nowadays. But it does raise some questions. 
Quote, the council was also staffed under suspicious circumstances. While the state education department, ignoring its own call for official candidates from local school districts and instead filling most of the slots with right-wing activists who have a history of proposing book bans, end quote. And, you know, the author says this as if it's supposed to be a, a surprise. But remember, this council is being put together based on legislation that was proposed by a state Congress that is completely controlled by Republicans. And they have a governor who is a Republican. And this legislation that they are talking about here, the Parental Rights Act, it is, more accurately, it was passed on partisan lines. So, of course, they're going to put the people that they believe will best enforce it or have the best interest of Republicans at heart on this council. So I, I think the author here has a little bit too much hope or a little bit too much idealistic tendencies to say, oh, well, you know, they, they created this legislation along party lines, but, but you know what, we're, we're going to have a bipartisan, completely unbiased council when they initially put one into effect. Come on. I, I'm sorry. That's extremely naive. I, this is what you should have expected. But also, that's not necessarily the author's point. The author is trying to get at that it's dangerous to put these sort of people on here and that the process for picking them overlooked candidates that may have been better qualified when addressing this issue of what kind of books should be in libraries and to the last point in here, in even private libraries that the teacher has. So, you know, I think that at the end of the day, it would have been nice to have a bipartisan group that represents all of parents' interests across the state, not just one side. But this is a worldview. The, the legislation, the parents who are actively fighting against this encroachment on their rights as parents when it comes to schooling their children, it's a worldview. It's a worldview that this CRT should not be taught to their kids, that they should not be learning about gender identity, that they should not be socially transitioned at school. This is a worldview. So if you have a bipartisan council, not everybody's going to share that world, worldview. Therefore, it's not going to be as effective at what the Republicans wanted it to do, which is to look at specific types of books that threaten the social fabric, in their words, and get rid of them from schools. So, let's move on to our next quote here. Quote, the Education Department passed on nearly 100 potential qualified applicants with relevant experience records show. In Brevard County alone, it ignored the five submissions made by the bipartisan local school board, including the nomination of a former elementary school assistant principal, the director of Eastern Florida State College's tutoring centers, and the administrator of a local scholarship fund. But, you know, I really, end quote, I really don't agree that the actors here should be so partisan. While I understand why they are, like I explained, they want a certain worldview enforced. 
at the end of the day, we are trying to bring together parents around the most important thing that they have, their children. And we are trying to foster a healthy state. And we want to ensure that these places where we develop these citizens that eventually will lead our nation are not battlegrounds. That at the end of the day, kids don't feel torn, like they are being used as a political chess piece. So it would have been nice to see if they had a few people from a different point of view on this council. And if not to just push back, to also point out where some of these MAGA moms, and I put that in air quotes because that is a weighted term that the author is using here, to you know, kind of push back on what these pa- other parents are saying and try to find a middle ground. Now, I know a middle ground is not always the solution, and I know at the end of the day... There are things that are more important than certain ideologies that are being spread through schools right now. And ensuring that we have a cohesive social fabric is very, very important to the strength of the nation. But right now we're using these kids, we're using education as a a bludgeoning tool, as a political... Basically, it's another thing on the political scorecard. Oh, that candidate is okay with uh, getting rid of certain ideologies in school? Fine. I think it's it's a dangerous path. Though I agree to some level with most of the things that these parents want to get rid of, I think that they do need to be introduced at some point. I think that there needs to be genuine conversations about them. Because if you do what a lot of Republicans want to do, which is outright ban them, it doesn't allow these kids to see an alternative point of view. Maybe they grew up in a location that is not diverse whatsoever, and their school system was the only place to get these opposing views that, you know, maybe shake their worldview or make them question. And if they're never challenged, if they're never asked to think critically about issues, if they're never meant to really think about what they want and the implications of certain actions, of policies, of different ideologies, then they're not going to be good citizens. They're not going to be effective voters who know what they want. They're going to be sheep that follow people that have good talking points and speak to what they already know. Now, maybe we should leave that to colleges, and I think that's a, an interesting conversation. But as a person in college, I will tell you now there is too much focus put on really fostering and developing critical thinking skills here in college, whereas college used to be a place where you were challenged, and like I said, I should have been a little bit more clear with my last words. College was meant to be a place where you develop critical thinking, not where you gain it. It's where you foster it. It's where you are actively challenged and you have to defend your point of view or you have to question your point of view. You should already have a little bit of critical thinking when you come into college. So I think that maybe a late education, maybe 12th grade, 11th grade, when people already have some idea of what they want from life, they have some idea of what they believe, but it's not so ingrained that they're not willing to actually sit down with somebody who disagrees with them and have a conversation. But we're getting a little bit far off track here. I think that at the end of the day, they should have had a few members that were not so obviously partisan for the right 
quote unquote. They should have had some people with a little bit more experience from the left who can sit down and actually have these in-depth conversations rather than everybody on the board agreeing for the most part. The question you should really ask yourselves is, if this board is really meant to represent parents' interests in which books or what their children are taught, then shouldn't parents of all stripes be included? Quote, censorship measures that initially target school libraries were extended to individual teachers' classrooms' collections, which must now be reviewed by a direct employee, a district employee holding a valid educational media specialist certificate. End quote. So these are, you know, really strong controls that are being placed on teachers. And this has caused some local union leaders to really be scared for the implications that some teachers, instead of going through this certifying process for the thousands of books that they have, they're just going to push some of their collection off to the side. And that may include books that have no political leaning whatsoever. And they may not, you know, put these books out in fear or in light of the fact that they're going to have to do so much work to have them out there that these kids are going to be deprived of this private library that these teachers often had. Now, to be fair, if the teacher really cares about the students, they will go through these hard controls and make sure that these books are available to the kids. But it's still a point that the union leaders bring up in the area. You know, one of the last key actors in this is Kevin Floff. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He is, quote, a childless conservative activist who, whose Florida Citizens Alliance has closely advised DeSantis for years on reforming public schools to combat cultural Marxism and LGBTQ values in favor of Judeo-Christian family values, end quote. So obviously this is, you know, a, a battle. Like I, I was framing it earlier, it's a battle for the public school systems in Florida, and it's really heating up. But I, I want you to remember that this hasn't just been uh, a one year. This has been a battle years in the making. And with you know help from Mr. Keith here, DeSantis is really pushing back against these, these school unions and the, quote, woke teachers. And he really has been pushing hard. And the, one of the reasons is, he is capitalizing. He is really taking advantage of this moment in political, uh, the in political environment where parents have become a voting block. We saw it here with Yunkin. So this is why this issue is reported on, talked about so much, and why DeSantis is making such strong moves and why you're seeing things like this come to the forefront because he knows that he can galvanize the parents who are against this sort of thing. And by having this board in place, he can say that we are actively making strides to combat wokeness in schools. And that is why you see this board being so one-sided. So keep that in mind. And also I want you to keep in mind this push that DeSantis is making because there's a connecting thread between our first two stories here. The next one comes from the Bellwalk, people he needs to be hurting. So the Florida Board of Medicine is scheduled to meet on Friday to discuss the banning of gender-affirming care, and that's going to be the 28th of October, just because, you know, people may listen to this in the future. So, you know, this 
idea, this um, legislation, I take that back, not legislation, this proposal was put forth by Joseph Lapido, the Surgeon General of Florida, at the behest of Ron DeSantis. Quote, Lapido's recommendations have already had a chilling effect on Florida hospitals. Some have stopped accepting new patients needing care for gender dysphoria in anticipation of coming changes in state law. The reason Lapido is seeking to ban youth gender-affirming care is the, quote, lack of a conclusive evidence, end quote, of its benefits, end quote. So the author points out here that his, his evidence when talking about this issue and when saying that we need to wait for more evidence to come out, we need to wait for the science to catch up, it, it's cherry-picked and misrepresented. And one important thing here before we go on, the author of this story, um, their child is transgender, and I believe they, they live in Florida, but I don't know that for sure. So there's, there's a lot of emotional weight here. And if you disagree with the author, fine. You could disagree with the author. If you agree with the author, great. Just remember here that this is a very p- emotional story for them, and it carries a lot of weight, and it can directly affect their child. So please do not put any malice towards them. I know at the end of the day there are lots of rational people out there, but everybody has their motivations. Everybody has someone who is affected by this, or at least knows someone that knows someone that's affected by this. And everybody has their reasoning, and people are complicated. So just because they're making points that you may not agree with, don't get too angry. So, you know, the author here points out that the evidence that Lapido is using is cherry-picked and misrepresented. But... What the author really fails to mention is that the science on gender-affirming care, you know, it's not 100% supported by every single doctor. And the author does point that out, saying we're never going to come to a full consensus. And I do agree. This issue is so politically weighted that it's going to be impossible to come to a 100% consensus about what we should do. But the people that are supporting it, the evidence that comes out supporting it normally come from organizations that are specifically meant to help slash promote transgender youth care or gender affirming care, as well as organizations such as hospitals, different medical organizations that directly benefit from having these practices, these different types of surgeries or different types of medications like hormone blockers. All these organizations benefit from it because a lot of this gender-affirming care is not covered by health insurance. And it is a very expen- they are very expensive procedures to have gender change surgeries, as well as it can be expensive to have hormone blockers and other um, hormone suppressants that they would give to these kids in order to stop them from going through puberty. So remember, there's always a financial aspect to this too. And while the science isn't 100% there on either side, there are financial interests, which is why I think is a big reason that this is being not pushed, but this is why it's not being shot down by the medical industry as much because they realize there's an opportunity here. Maybe I'm cynical. Maybe these doctors and these health organizations really believe that they have the best interests of these kids at heart. But at the end of the day, money speaks louder than words. Cash is king. 
And I really think that this is a huge proponent of why you have recently seen a lot of different hospitals say that they do gender-affirming care because they can make good money off of it. Uh, you know, again, I want to be clear. The evidence is not 100% in favor of either side. And, you know, like I said, it will never really be there. It's not like bloodletting in the medieval era where eventually, where people thought it was in good intentions. Oh, yeah, we need to get rid of the bad blood. And then we were just proven wrong over time. No, this is at this point, this issue has become so politically motivated that it's going to be hard to get either side out of their trench because they just adamantly believe in what they believe. So I don't necessarily see us having a conclusion, a decisive answer here within the next few years, maybe even within my lifetime. But we'll see. We'll see how the winds change. Quote, what happened in Florida has nothing to do with science. It's all about fueling political polarization. Ron DeSantis is a man of the conservative and authoritarian inclinations. As his rhetoric and actions suggest, he has presidential ambitions. He's also keen and a keen observer of what most Adderant supporters want, such as the desire to attack those whose existence they find offensive while claiming they do it for their own good. End quote. So, like I was talking about with the school issue, this is another issue where Ron DeSantis has taken a hard line of stance, and he's pushing back really hard because it gets attention on the national stage. And as a man who likely will run for office, maybe I'm being cynical again, but I, I really think that he is speaking to parents and issues that these culture war issues that a lot of people are worried about and he's using it to gear up and grow his image for a presidential run. And I think to pivot a little bit from what's actually happening, but to a little bit of forecasting and what the left really thinks of DeSantis, I think that the left is scared of DeSantis. And I think this last line really gives you a hint as to what they're thinking. Quote, those who support DeSantis's crusade against families and trans kids should beware. History teaches us that when you choose leaders to hurt people you hate, they eventually end up hurting the people you love too, end quote. So this is framing him as an authoritarian dictator, so to speak, someone who is actively going after the enemy, but eventually could turn on you if you don't align with him. And, you know, I know I'm reading into it a little bit, but that's the subtext here. That's what the author is really getting at. And that's, you can feel the emotion in that kind of statement. And I think that the Democrats are scared of DeSantis. I think these last two articles, though they are about specific issues, they both at some point rag on DeSantis, highlight why this is an issue, why he is a bad person for doing what he's doing or following the people he's following in the last case or taking the advice from different advisors that he's, you know, taking these advice that may lead him down a path that they don't enjoy. And they love to point it out and they love to criticize him for it. And they're trying to portray him as a evil or that's maybe a little bit cynical of me again. Maybe they're trying, they're trying to portray him as a person who only has high political ambitions, is worried about his own career, and doesn't actually care about these issues. And I think this is because 
DeSantis is a more well-put-together, a more effective Trump. He doesn't stand for the BS. He ensures that if the media is saying something about him, he calls it out. And he does it in a more coherent way than Trump did. He sits down, breaks down their argument. He has the facts. He's like Kaylee McEnany in front of that stand. Whenever she, someone would say something, whether you like her or not, she would have a book full of facts to completely dismantle their arguments. And he also has been inside the political system. He knows the game, which means he can be more effective rather than being an outsider who's just guided along by different advisors. And I think the Democrats are scared of a possible DeSantis presidency because of the momentum he's been building and how effective and intelligent, I hate to say it, sometimes, you know, he says some things that make me, you know, step back. But at the end of the day, he's an intelligent, coherent man. And he has wide appeal. So the Democrats are really sniping for him now. They're trying to deflate his career. They're trying to find any issue they can before it comes to that 2023 window where he'll be running for president. But that's enough for me. That was the through line for the first two stories. I really just wanted to tie that together because I read both of them and I, I was, I've been seeing a lot of DeSantis stories recently. Why are they hating on him so much? And it's actually having the inverse effect, in my opinion. It's the Trump effect. They are so scared or they don't want him to be in power. They don't like his policies and they're covering him negatively. But it's actually having the opposite effect. His name is getting out there. More people may actually end up agreeing with what he's saying. And no press is bad press. So we'll see if it works out for him when 2023 comes. I mean, that's if Trump steps down. <laughs> I don't I don't see Trump stepping aside to let DeSantis in. I don't think the man's ego can handle that, honestly. Our last article comes from the Daily Beast. The title reads, We need to stop calling far-right extremists conservatives. The author brings up a recent piece in The Federalist, that, which is a right-wing publication, they like to note, that talked about the need to stop calling themselves conservatives and themselves being here the, the hardline right-wingers. Quote, by insisting on calling this new MAGA movement conservative, we, the media, activists, and politicians, are rendering words useless. To be sure, political movements like the English language itself evolve over time. But calling Trumpist radicals conservative, end quote, is a tumult tantamount to saying the word literally means figuratively. So the I'll start with where I disagree with this author, which is the idea that uh, MAGA supporters are more far right. I, I think that is not accurate whatsoever. I think if we're being honest, the the tr- MAGA, the Trump voters are really a, a coalition of populists ranging from former liberals to disavowed Bernie supporters who just wanted someone from outside the regime to conservatives and nationalists. I think that he really spoke to this outsider mentality, which was, I do not want a career politician getting into office. I do not want someone who is, you know, as Trump would say, from the swamp. I don't want someone who is going to put their interests above mine, that they're going to stick to party lines. And they saw Trump as a a person to lift the country as a whole and to get us away from this 
divisive politic, uh, political scheme that we were in. And he guided the Republican Party in a new direction for sure. But to claim that all MAGA voters, all people that support Trump are just outright conservatives or they're, oh, they're more conservative, they're more right-wing than conservatives, I, I think that is, is dangerous because at the end of the day, he is a populist candidate. And to discourage populism by trying to shove it off into the right wing or into the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, you know, it, it really speaks to how ingrained this two-party system is into the perception that America has or this idea that there are, there are two sides and anything else is kind of the fringe. We have our conservatives, we have our liberals, anything else is the fringe. That's never been the case. I mean, we had the progressives in the 1940s. We had Federalists versus Anti-Federalists at the beginning of our country. These things have constantly evolved, and there have constantly been new coalitions of people. So to pretend that this populist movement is just another far-right kind of deal, I think at the end of the day, that is dangerous. I think it is dismissive. And I think it's the author trying to look at the worst part of the MAGA people, the people that are really the far right, the very vocal ones, and trying to lump everybody else in with them. But at the end of the day, I do agree with his point that conservatives should have, you know, their own little their own little niche. They they should have their own little hole. And if these far right people that the Federalist is referring to wants to have their own terminology, their own party name, their own ideology name, go for it. It'll make it easier to distinguish. And at the end of the day, they will probably, if they ever somehow make a party or if they somehow organize, they probably won't get as many votes as Republicans because people in the older generation see Republicans, they like the word conservative, and they're going to stick to it. But the author does bring up a good point here. Quote, Still, I can't help but think this apocalyptic surrender is dramatically overwrought. Thanks largely to conservatives, America won the Cold War against the Soviets. What is more, over a 50-year struggle, conservative pro-life activists and conservative legal establishment overturned Roe v. Wade, admittedly with Donald Trump's help. It also is worth asking... What would America have looked like if conservatives hadn't been there to push back on radical ideas? A lot worse, I suspect, end quote. And this is the author really conceding that there is value to the conservative movement and that there is something special to it, or at least impactful about it. So I agree with the author here, and I think giving up that name and trying to encompass everybody on the right as conservative really will degrade in the history books, looking back from the future, it will degrade everything that the conservatives have done. Because at the end of the day, they're going to look at the new right-wingers who, if something happens, if they do something outrageous and they're branded as conservatives, it will be a stain on the conservative legacy that has kept this country on the right track. Along with, let's be clear, along with the liberals on the other side pushing forward. And like I mentioned earlier, of course there are the occasional spurts like the progressives who move this country forward, who really change the way we think about certain things in this country and how the anti-federalists did the same thing at the beginning of this nation. 
all of these different coalitions, all of these outside the fr- outside the core of conservative and liberal, they of course changed the course of this nation, just as the conservatives did, and just as the liberals did during the era of Bill Clinton. Before that, with Lyndon B. Johnson, so each party has each coalition, each ideology has its moment in time where it has done something very beautiful that has helped America get to where it is today. But if we allow these terms, conservatives, liberals, to be co-opted by people that aren't conservative, that aren't liberals in the traditional sense of the word, then it's going to stain their reputation when we're looking back from the future. And I think the author is right here when he says that there should be a split or at least make sure that we can identify them as something else. Maybe they're still part of the Republican coalition, but at least they have a different name. And, you know, you've seen this spurred up. You have all the neocons, the establishment, all these different terms for all these different ideologies. So, or the democratic socialists on the progressive wing. So there have been so many evolving names and they always, there always will be because people are always looking to create something new to have, a new identity, a new group that really speaks to what they want done in the country. But we need to do this sooner rather than later, especially with the Democrats always pointing out, ah, the MAGA Republicans. They're branding all conservatives as MAGA Republicans, and that is dangerous at the end of the day because not all conservatives believe what MAGA Republicans believe. There are the rhinos. There are the establishment Republicans who would be considered conditionally, traditionally conservative who are sitting in Congress right now. And if they're branded as a MAGA Republican and they don't believe half the stuff that the MAGA Republicans do, it's going to be hurtful because at the end of the day, they're trying to associate them with Trump. They're trying to associate them with their policies. And they're just going to get lost in that rather than actually talking about the conservative values that they want to promote and making sure that their constituents who voted them in because they're conservative, get conservative policies rather than populist policies. So this distinguish, there needs to be a distinguishing factor. And this rise of populism is really, really interesting. If you take a look back, there were populist movements in the past, but this is the strongest one we've had in a long time. And I would argue it's because of social media and the connectivity that people have. No longer are people siloed off in their little small town in Wyoming or in their tiny town in Virginia. Now those two people who may have similar ideas can talk over social media, can have these conversations about how the system, the establishment, has disenfranchised them. And that's what Trump really, really tapped into, this populist, anti-establishment, anti-big government idea. And I think that social media and the internet has really led to this change. And I think a lot of people in our generation, and by our generation I mean Gen Z, are very populist. They're very low-key populist when you talk to them about their beliefs or you make certain jokes and everybody really laughs along, they agree. You know, they have this idea, oh, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. But at the end of the day, we can all joke about a lot of the same things about Big Brother, the government coming for us, uh, the overreach, the amount of spending on certain programs, how the government is too involved in our life. All, all these threads of populism are ever-present. And I don't think, because a lot of people are not as politically active as 
some other people, they don't actually realize how populist they are. So I think this is something we need to keep our eye on. We need to make sure that we're properly identifying the groups and we need to make sure that that we're looking out for the, the populace and we're making sure that they are properly identified because at the end of the day, we do not want to lump in some of the populist ideas with conservatism. We don't want to lump in some of the populist ideas with liberalism because then they're going to be swallowed whole and the populist movement is slowly, slowly going to die out. So we need to ensure that there are distinct categories for everybody. That's enough ranting for me. That was a really long tirade. It, sorry, today has been all over the place, but I just had lots of thoughts. So our last thing is the Daily Delight from News 18. Baby Hippo and Giraffe's Love reminds people of Madagascar characters. So if any of you have watched Melman and Gloria on the big screen, you'll know how much they are a cute but odd couple. Well, their story has come to life. Quote, in a video that has gone viral, a baby hippopotamus is nuzzling up against a young giraffe. The video is enough to cheer your mood and warm your heart, even on a not-so-good day. The clip left many users reminiscing about the movie Madagascar, in which a hippo and giraffe fell in love with each other. You know, and it is very cute to see how curious both these little guys are. And, you know, they're from two totally different species, but it, it gives me hope that if even they can get along, then we here, we as humans, can get along with people that have completely different beliefs than us. One user said, quote, aren't those guys from Madagascar? While a second user said, it's the real-life Gloria Melman. The third user hilariously commented, quote, no one told me they were making Madagascar in live action, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute videos or read any of today's article, there will be a link below that like and subscribe button in the description. And also there is my Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip. Uh, follow me there for convenient, easy news on a daily basis. Some days I put out the podcast, but most of the time I'm quote tweeting, making some sort of analysis, or just asking important questions and trying to make it a little bit more convenient for everybody to consume the news. All right, with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.